0: God, we are thankful for the th- things we've been singing this morning, that we can run into your arms, that your love is high and deep, that our past does not define us, that the chains of sin have been set free. So, Lord, we thank you for these truths and promises and encouragements and cause them to settle deep into our hearts. Lord, now as we approach your word, I pray that you would give us a humble spirit, but I pray that you would convict and encourage based upon what we as individuals and as a church need. And Lord, even for those who are here who maybe hearing these verses was a discouragement. Maybe they feel like, I wanna be a husband or wife, but I'm not, or I wanna be a parent, and I'm not, or I'm looking for employment and I haven't found it. But I pray that you would strengthen and encourage them, help them to see the big principle of Paul that wherever we are, you have a purpose for us and we can follow you there. So, Lord, meet with us now and be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you want to read the Bible and experience life change, like really have it impact you, the best way is to read with other people in mind. So rather than reading the Bible to be personally convicted or encouraged or changed, be thinking about who really needs to hear this message. So in a text like ours today, if you're a husband... Rather than paying attention to the part for husbands, think about how your wife needs to listen. Or Colossians 3, where it says, be humble or put on humility. Have that person in mind that really needs to hear that passage. Well, don't call me a liar. I hope it's obvious that is not how we should read the Bible. But often, if we're truthful, that is how we approach Bible reading or even sermons. And it's okay to read scripture with others in mind in the sense that maybe I can text someone an encouraging voice, verse or it leads me to pray for them. But primarily when we approach the Bible, we should do so with a humble spirit that's asking God to change, convict, help, and encourage us personally. But since I know we're all tempted not to do that, Before we dive into today's text, I want to remind us to primarily listen to God's Word for how you can be changing. Our text speaks directly to husbands and wives, children and parents, but try to avoid giving the side eyes or coughing when you want someone else to be listening. Let me quickly remind us of how we got here to chapter 3, verse 18. In the first two chapters, Paul shows us how Jesus is Lord of everything. Jesus is Lord of creation, he's the Lord of the church, and he's the Lord of individual Christians. In chapter 3, verse 10, we're told that we put on the image of Christ as we put off our old ways and put on the new behaviors and virtues that are true of who we are in Christ. And that's what in chapter 3, the vices, if you see in verses 5 to 9, and then the virtues in 12 to 16 are all about. These are the clothes that no longer fit us if we're in Jesus and then the things that are appropriate for a follower of Jesus. Then that leads to verse 17, where Paul kind of says, I can't speak into every issue of life, but here's the broad principle. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of Jesus. And so that naturally leads us to where we are today, starting in verse 18. And the main idea in our passage is that every role and every relationship offers us a chance to reflect Jesus. That wherever God has you, you can actually display Jesus through your discipleship. And Paul mentions specifically three groups. Again, wives, husbands, children, parents, and servants and masters. But the broad principle is also true if you're single, if you're a student, if you're a grandparent, or if you have siblings. Paul's point is wherever you are, whatever station God has you at in life, this is where he wants to grow you, use you, and you can actually put him on and reflect him. And so in our section today, Paul addresses these three sets of people that were part of what was called the ancient household. These are known as ancient household codes. And here he's not interested in giving a full explanation for any one of them, but he's trying to give the simple principle that wherever you are, you can follow Jesus. And so in our time today, we'll quickly consider each one. But if you want more details on our church website and the sermon notes, I have provided resources for any of those if you want to go deeper or think through it a little more. So follow along. The first group are wives and husbands. And in verse 18, Paul addresses wives. He gives one commandment and then the explanation. He says, Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, submission today is a dirty word for many. In a day and age where personal autonomy is seen as the highest good, and any authority, whether it's a person or an organization, is seen as bad, submission can sound like suppression. But as we see in the Bible, all of us are called to submission in different areas. Children submit to parents. Members of a church are called to submit to their leaders. Employees submit to their bosses. Citizens submit to the government. And the church as a whole, we submit to Jesus. And so all of us are called to submission somewhere, even if that looks a little different in each circumstance. For wives, I don't know what image comes to mind when you hear this, but it doesn't mean you have to look like June Cleaver. Before talking about what submission is, let me share four things, at least four things, that it's not. The first is that submission doesn't suggest inferiority, inequality, or lesser value. We see that Jesus actually submits to the Father, but he is no lesser God or less glorious. Two, submission doesn't mean being a doormat, having no say, never disagreeing, or letting your spouse walk all over you. To be submissive is not to be bullied or to be silenced. Submission should never lead people into abuse, into harm, or into disobedience of God's word. Third, submission isn't obedience. Paul will, in a few verses, tell children and servants they should obey, but he does not use that language for wives. So don't see submission and obedience as the same thing. And then fourth, submission isn't traditionalism or sticking with the cultural gender roles in marriage that have sometimes been lived out. It doesn't mean the husband has to be the one driving the car. In our marriage, my wife and I have different gifts and interests, so our marriage often doesn't look like the traditional roles as some have assumed. Melissa is actually the handyman or handywoman in our marriage, and so she usually fixes things and takes on the bigger projects. Now, when she needs something done, like putting batteries in the remote, she tells me, and I do it. I can handle that. And then for me, I actually do a lot of the things like grocery shopping or laundry. little pro tip here, folding laundry is the best chore whether you're an adult or a kid, if you get to choose the chore, it's the only one where you can literally sit down and watch a movie while doing a chore. So pick that one. But the point here is to not confuse submission with taking on these traditional tasks that are sometimes associated with a gender, but they're not actually stated in the Bible. So what is submission then? Douglas Moo says, submission suggests a voluntary willingness to recognize and put oneself under the leadership of another. Submission involves choosing to support and to follow a leader. It recognized the God-designed structure of the husband being the head of the home for the good of everyone, but also as a way to display the gospel between Christ and his bride, the church. Paul then says that this, living in this way, is fitting in the Lord meaning that a wife's choice to submit to her husband is one way that she actually honors and follows Christ. We'll come back to this in a minute for application, but let's move on to how Paul addresses husbands. Part of the joy of this text is that everyone gets a chance to be in the hot seat. So right there, if you were a husband nudging your wife, it's your turn. And what immediately stands out to me from this text is that what you would expect Paul to say... After he tells husbands or tells wives to submit to their husbands, you would think he would say that husbands, you should lead your wives. But he doesn't say that. Instead, notice what he says it's that husbands, you should love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So instead of going with the word lead, he actually chooses love here. Now, if the language of submission could open up the door at all, For this kind of language of submission and leadership to lead to abuse or harm or a husband being domineering, Paul immediately closes that door. He actually uses language that protects the wife and upholds her. Now we have household codes like this throughout ancient literature like Paul is giving, but this is the only instance we have where a husband is actually told to love their wife. And so we see the Bible being countercultural in how it prizes and exalts women at the time. Now for Paul, a husband's leadership is described then as selfless, sacrificial love that puts the good of those under your care before yourself. If you hear the parallel passage of Ephesians 5.25, it helps us see how husbands can actually mirror the love of Christ for his church. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so here the gospel is our model and our motivation. The gospel tells us that Jesus gave up his life for us, not when we deserved it, not when we were lovable people, but when we were sinners. And so because Christ extended such grace and kindness and sacrificial love to us, we can give that grace and kindness to others, including our spouse, whether we think they've earned it or not. Eric Raymond says it this way, The command for the Christian husband to love his wife is not contingent upon her fulfilling any particular roles. In other words, it's to characterize his life even if his wife is not acting lovely. More to the point, it's an ongoing, everyday type of love. It's not a love only reserved for wedding days, anniversaries, or Valentine's Day. This everyday love characterizes the disposition of the Christian husband to his wife. Paul then follows up his command to love their wives by saying, Do not be harsh toward them. Do not cause bitterness in them by being sarcastic, domineering, rude, or cruel. So Paul's encouraging husbands to lead by love and gentleness rather than wielding our spot with power and authority, to lead for their good, not to get our way. I think what we see in this first set of people that Paul addresses is that husbands and wives are called to discipleship in their marriage. Now, both are difficult tasks, but Jesus is actually the model, the example for both groups. The husband or the wife follows Jesus and honors Jesus, and how they follow him and his example is that he follows the father. And then Jesus is the model for husbands and how he lays down his life and his rights for the church. One commentator says perhaps this pattern reflects the particular susceptibilities of each partner in the relationship. Wives may be tempted to chafe under the headship of their husbands and husbands are prone to abuse their leadership role. In other words, both callings are difficult. Submission and sacrificial love are both more than we can do on our own. We need help. As Colossians 2 says, we have to be so rooted in Jesus that he's filling us and forming us. He's helping us live this out. And the reality is that the culture today It does not help or set up wives and husbands for success. We're told that we should look out for ourselves first. We're told that self-fulfillment rather than self-denial is the good life. But marriage as a picture of the gospel, it offers us this counter narrative that it's not about us. And so both a husband and a wife trying to live out God's design will at times feel like they're swimming upstream. The culture will sweep you up in this self-centered thinking and living, and yet it's the cross that will call you to deny yourself and lay down your life for others. And so marriage is not just something we're in or something we have, but marriage is a place to follow and to reflect Jesus. Well, the next group is children and parents. Paul first speaks to children in verse 20. This is likely younger children because they're still under the parent's supervision, but they're also able to hear and understand the words of Paul. Now, both here and in a few verses later, when it talks to servants, when it says obey in everything, it doesn't mean obey no matter what. It doesn't mean obey even if you're told to do wrong, you're told to go against God's word. Instead, this language of obedience in everything means in all areas of life. Obey even when it wouldn't be your choice, or it's not what you like or what you want. The word here for obey, it's translated from two different words. The word for listening, but also the word for under. Now, as a parent, you probably feel the connection between obedience and listening, which is why you hear yourself asking questions like, Do you hear me? Are you listening to me? You're starting to sound more and more like your own parents, Saying the things you vowed you would never say to your kids. Well, the word here then for obey, it implies that they are both listening, but also then responding to the person who is leading them. Now, for those of you here who are kids, whether you're a young child, a teenager, or a young adult, still under your parents' supervision, this is God's encouragement and command to you as part of how you follow Jesus. We're reminded that God wants us to listen to our parents to respect what they tell us, and to honor them with our decisions, to not just hear them as an annoying background voice we tune out, but to listen to their words, and to see even our obedience to them as one way we obey and follow Jesus. And again, Jesus is the example here. Jesus perfectly obeyed his heavenly Father. Well, he quickly moves from children now addresses parents In verse 21, Paul encourages parents to not provoke their children, lest they become discouraged. The word here for fathers, it can mean specifically fathers, or it can refer to both fathers and mothers, as it does in Hebrews 11. And so most agree that likely both parents are here in mind, even if fathers are the primary subject. Other translations for the word provoke use exasperate, aggravate, or embitter saying, don't discourage your children so it leads to them losing heart or giving up. This idea of provoking or exasperating, it conveys the idea of not speaking to or treating your children only with sternness. Of not constantly piling demands on them that crush them or getting on their case all the time. R. Kent Hughes, he lists five ways among many that we can avoid provoking or exasperating our children. He says, do not be critical, do not be over strict, do not be irritable, do not be inconsistent, and do not show favoritism. In other words, we see that you should affirm more than you criticize, to respond with gentleness rather than impatience, to teach them what is true more than you just tell them what is wrong, to shepherd more than you discipline, to correct them but to do so without crushing their spirit. Like each role we've seen so far, we're reminded that Jesus is still the model. We not only have these verses that God is a good father to us, but we have verses explaining how Jesus is a good shepherd who cares for the sheep under him. And so again, Jesus not only helps us live this out, but he shows us what it looks like. Before moving to the last set that Paul addresses, I want to quickly apply this to parents in two ways. The first is to watch your words, but also your tone. As parents, and I do think this is kind of pressurized in this season, it's easy for us to become frustrated, annoyed, impatient, and angry. So both our words, but also our tone, can come out harsh to our children. And let's be honest, every day your kids push you to the edge. There's a reason you have more gray hair once you have children. Sometimes it's things like disobedience, siblings nagging, whining, a bad attitude. And sometimes it's small things like when you give your daughter carrots and hummus and she takes all the carrots and places them vertically around the hummus container, turned it into a carrot ashtray. Especially with toddlers, there's this fine line between that being amusing or infuriating. And it partly depends on your mood that day. And so I think what happens as parents is how we react is dependent on our mood. If we've had a stressful day, a stressful conversation, if we're trying to get some cleaning done, if we're trying to answer another email or call, little things actually lead to blowing up. And so that's why we need to hear this word, to not be harsh, but to respond with patience and love. It's not that we can't be firm, but I think as parents you often know when you've moved from being firm to being harsh. And if you don't know, ask the people around you and they can probably help you figure that out. The second application as parents is that we need to understanding that parenting is part of how you actually grow as a disciple. That parenting isn't just something you do, but parenting does something to you. God's desire is that it forms us into Christ's likeness as we learn that we don't have control and we have to trust God to be in control. Parenting forms us as we have to admit our own failures and weaknesses and sins to our children. It forms us as we're more concerned about being a faithful parent than the end product we might desire. And so we should see that God is actually using our children And he's using this role of parenting to actually shepherd and to shape us. So again, whether you're a child or a parent or both, God wants you to see that as a place where you can actually follow Jesus and reflect Jesus. Well, the third groups of people that Paul addresses are servants and masters. It might feel like, yeah, I kind of get talking to husbands and wives, parents and children, but servants and masters, that feels like it's kind of out of left field. Well, Douglas Moo explains how this section fits with the others. He writes, The inclusion of slaves in this series of household regulations might appear odd to us, but not so to the original readers. Slaves often composed an integral component of the ancient household, serving the family in a variety of capacities. And so both masters and servants were present in the church at Colossae, And Paul speaks to both, and he wants them to see, you can honor Jesus in whichever role you were in. And we should pause here and note that this isn't everything the Bible or Paul has to say about slavery. There are other verses, one being 1 Corinthians 7.21, where Paul tells slaves that if they can secure their freedom, they can do so. And so don't hear this and think this is all the Bible talks about when it comes to slavery. And yet at the same time, we should recognize this does raise some questions just like you can read the part to wives and have your own understanding of submission in mind that you kind of import into the Bible, I think it's easy for us to take our American understanding and history of slavery and read that into Paul's text. But we should know that slavery in Paul's day, it was not race-based, nor was it chattel slavery where a slave had no rights and no hope of freedom. Slavery was usually a, a political or an economic issue. People became slaves either through war, their country lost, or debt. They need to pay off what they owe. It could affect any class, any ethnicity, and any profession. Tim Keller says it was more like we today would call indentured servitude. Now we should know that the Bible actually regulates this servitude so that the people are not abused, harmed, or lose their rights and privileges including the ability for slaves to pay off their debts and secure freedom. In his book, Should We Trust the Bible, if it advocates slavery or talks about slavery, Brandon Cleaver writes this. For example, Leviticus 25 notes that the Israelite master is to treat his slave servant as a worker hired year by year, that he shall not rule ruthlessly over him, and that he and his children should be released in the year of jubilee. Furthermore, we find standards for the cases when harm is caused, as in Exodus 21, the same level of harm that is caused to the slave or servant will be reciprocated to the master. And his point is, this is completely contrary to pre-Civil War slavery, where masters were given carte blanche to treat their property as they please. So I hope this can be helpful to understanding that Paul isn't here advocating for slavery But he does write to people living in that system. And he wants servants to know that you can actually honor Christ by working for him as your master, not your earthly master. And he wants masters to know that you should reflect Jesus and how you treat people justly and fairly. Now to transition, well, how does that apply to us today? Most commentators agree the closest area for us is thinking about our work or our vocation, even though it's not a one-to-one. But what we see in these passages is that our work matters to God. Not only what we do, but how we do it and who we do it for. So first, notice what Paul says to servants or employees. Paul says to obey, not just by way of eye service, meaning either to be seen or working hard only when you are seen. He then continues in verse 22. Don't work as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Fearing the Lord, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. So essentially, Paul is saying, work hard as one who fears the Lord because you serve him, even if it feels like you serve someone else. How you honor Christ at work is just as important as how you honor Christ in the church or in the home. Well, then to employers or bosses, Supervisors, Paul has these words. It's in chapter 4, verse 1. It's pretty straightforward. It says, Treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So he's saying, treat those under you like you would want your master, Jesus, to treat you. And so here, if you are a supervisor or a boss or a manager, it tells us that you get the chance to reflect Jesus in how you care for and how you lead those who are under your authority. And so what we see is whether it's talking about the marriage relationship between a husband and wife, the parent-child relationship, or even in the workplace between bosses, employers, and employees, all of those are places where we can live out our discipleship where we can honor Jesus by our attitudes, and where we can follow him as we display Christ. And so the point of today's passage, it's not to give us a big theology of marriage or parenting or work. It's simply to make this point, that every role and relationship offers an opportunity to reflect Christ. And so wherever God has you, whatever station or status you're in, there you can display Jesus through your discipleship. Now, one way we follow Jesus is by applying what we've seen the last couple of weeks in Colossians 3, verses 12 to 15. We apply this not just generally, but to specific areas of life. So let me read these again and think of how this would apply in the neighborhood, the workplace, the church, or the home. It says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, The point is that we put these things on in specific roles and relationships. So we actually, we work, we parent, we follow Jesus in our marriage or in our singleness by putting on Christ. Just imagine how your apartment or your home or your work life would look different if we applied those verses from Colossians 3. What would it look like to lean into compassion that seeks to understand those around you rather than just wanting them to change or to get your way? What will it look like to put on meekness and humility so you consider the needs of others first? How can you put on patience rather than a quick temper or an irritable spirit? What would it look like to be a peacemaker rather than wanting to get your way or prove that you are right? Or how can you cultivate a home or a workplace that's full of thankfulness rather than grumbling, criticizing, or complaining. So we live as disciples of Jesus in all of life by putting him on in each of these areas. And so even today, we don't necessarily need a new application. We just need to see that the Christian life of putting off and putting on, what we've talked about in Colossians 3, these are applied everywhere. So whether you're in the neighborhood, you're in the workplace, or you're in the home, or in the church, these are the ways that we follow Jesus and we display him. And so for today or for the rest of the week, I have three questions for you to consider, to think about, and maybe even to talk to those with around you. First, what are the roles and the relationships that I'm in? Second, how can I better follow Jesus and reflect Jesus there? And then third, maybe how we answer the second question, what would it look like to put on Jesus in these virtues or these actions from chapter 3, verses 12 to 15, in those specific areas? God wants us to see that wherever you are, wherever he has you, he has you there for a purpose. And part of that purpose is so that you can display Jesus, you can grow in Jesus, and you can know Jesus through your discipleship. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, when I hear these words from Paul, I know that we need your help. Lord, we know that we fail in whatever role you've given us. We know that we need your strength to do it well. So Lord, help us to see every aspect of our day and our life as an area to live under your lordship. Lord, thank you for the places you've put us in in, in our life. Thank you for the people around us. And help us even this week to show them Jesus to put on Jesus, to be rooted in Jesus so that we can reflect Jesus. Lord, we pray that as that happens, that you would be glorified by your church. In Jesus' name, amen.